not sure which United is turning up for which game these days. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's completely and utterly bizarre. I, I guess we serve both our own emotional well-being and our listeners by doing the Cardiff first. You know, you get your, you get your veg out of the way before you have your pudding, right? Yeah, I, I'm not sure I've heard that analogy before, but yeah. Well, this was an overboiled Brussels sprout of a game. Just yeah, I love I love vegetables. This was uh, like primary school school dinners vegetables, wasn't it? Yes, kept on getting worse as you ploughed on through it. <laughs> yeah. We could stretch this one a little way. Where to go with the Cardiff game? I mean, obviously the last thirty seconds or so were pretty dire, but for much of the second half, in fact, for much of the whole game, United not only defended like a pub side but seemed disorganized and sloppy the passing was very poor sub 80 percent again in terms of completion rate of passes very poor for a top side 50 percent possession against a side only just sitting above the relegation zone in fact for much of the game Cardiff looked like the more dangerous side didn't they extremely penetrating going forward United not so all of the time and really really odd performance I mean I just don't know how to analyse it except that we were really abysmal I mean we were bad at the back cleverly and Fellaini is not the answer to the age-old question of what do we do about Manchester United central midfield is it I don't know I particularly want to lump on to two players that have had endless stick off United's fan base might as well do it yeah I mean yeah I mean what, what else can you do it's just an analysis of the performance right neither of them looked anywhere close to being good enough to be Manchester United central midfielders not even close no well look I know I've given Fellaini a fair amount of stick I actually thought he was the better of the pair I thought cleverly had an utter stinker I mean he was United's worst player by some considerable distance in my opinion and uh, Fellaini did okay but I mean he didn't really get the ball very much 50 passes in total and that's total obviously less than that in terms of the number he actually completed just wasn't involved in the game just seems pedestrian doesn't he I'm struggling still and uh, it's the end of November to work out what is the point of Maran Fellaini? He's not an attacking player. He's not a defensive player. He doesn't add energy and drive. He doesn't add any creativity. What does he do? But then again, even less than that. Uh, a complete liability, I thought, against Cardiff. Completely bypassed by Much and Medell and Whittingham in the centre of Cardiff's midfield who were, you know, significantly superior. Yeah, the point of Tom Cleverley is increasingly under scrutiny, isn't it? I mean, lots of fans very hostile towards him, which seems really, you know, he's a young player. Would Don't we, don't we kind of want him to do well? I mean... We do. He's not that young anymore. That's the thing. I mean, he's been around uh, some time and he doesn't appear to be progressing. And that's the frustrating part. Why isn't he progressing? Uh, I know he's not getting a lot of games, but, you know, this one's a circular one. He's not progressing either. He's not doing enough in games to justify his selection. In fact, when United went away to Leverkusen, uh, he was out of the side altogether. And uh, I guess that was pre-planned, that being possibly the more difficult of the two games you'd think uh, and when you're not able to get in the side as a England international and a young player of some promise who expects to be making a good career at Manchester United and a 40 year old winger is in the side ahead of you and a central defender you've got to worry yeah absolutely and nobody could have argued in their right mind that cleverly did anything in the Cardiff game to suggest he should be starting in the Leverkusen game I mean cleverly's United career started so promisingly you think back to that Community Shield performance and he, he, the subsequent games, you know, we were getting really excited about an Anderson-Cleverly partnership in central midfield. That's how long ago it is. Then he got that injury on, I'm sure you could potentially even remember the date, Ed, because it was the day you got married. That was the day Tom Cleverly left the field against Bolton with a moon boot on. And he's never recovered his United career from there, has he? No, he hasn't. The thing is, he appears to have got uh, more and more safe with everything he does. And his passing is... is is never penetrative uh, and this is for a ball playing midfielder he, he clearly is not a defensive player he's not a creative player anymore either uh, he has no great shakes in the pace department what you need him to do is use the ball in the right way and he's not doing it at the moment he just feels very very lightweight and all those things could be positives for him uh, he certainly has plenty to offer but it's not happening and it's very hard to justify any position in the side and you know look I'm certainly no Tom Cleverly hater I really want him to do well I was excited about him when he first started to get into the United side I thought uh, here's a young man who if he could just add a few goals to his game could 
be a significant contributor to United over the coming years. Hasn't done that. In fact, he seems to have regressed in some other areas. Anyway, look, I guess this wasn't really supposed to be a 10-minute rant about Tom Cleverley, but he was that bad that it's worth focusing on him. But it wasn't just Cleverley who was poor. Rio Ferdinand was poor. I'm not sure David De Gea really covered himself in glory either. Hernandez up front was totally ineffectual, which is a shame for him because I'd like to see him get some more games. I think he's got plenty to offer. In fact, probably the only player or maybe players who really did well were, were Rooney, who uh, put in one of those performances where he makes lots of effort, uh, which, you know, I guess he's swapped for talent these days. Uh, sorry to be a cynic about it. And and Patrice ever had another good game at left-back and continues to excel in that position. Well, yes, except that you could definitely argue that a huge part of the reason we didn't win that game was because of Patrice Everett and Wayne Rooney because Rooney did have a good game but he had the best opportunity like after Cardiff had scored their second he really I mean gotta score it where on earth did he come up with the idea that you're supposed to pass in that position that seems like the least Wayne Rooney thing to do in the world and then uh, Patrice massively at fault for the set piece um, he just got involved in an interchange with the referee because there was some argy-bargy in the box featuring Fellaini and then he just completely and utterly switched off in the six yard box but also uh, Smalling who didn't have a bad game defensively made the crucial mistake because I don't know about you but the second I saw him kick the Cardiff player and give that free kick away I'm not particularly fatalistic but that was just such an oh no moment it just felt like well it's been coming and coming and coming and this is going to be it isn't it and lo and behold it was yeah it was I mean so look it's one thing to pick uh, errors out of uh, Evra's game I guess and and fair enough he deserved criticism for that kind of lapsing concentration but I think overall he's been very good and uh, I I think there was more that contributed to United's failure in that game than individual errors but uh, of course you know football is won and lost in the details always isn't it I just asked Tottenham who uh, created as many chances had as much possession as Manchester City but lost (laughs) 6-0 yeah a little unfortunate for them um Uh, Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, but the devil is in the detail and we would have got out of that one with a slightly undeserved win if it hadn't been for key defensive errors, wouldn't it? Listen, if I'm going to be pointing out individual errors, I can't not point out the uh, Danny Welbeck chance, but people sort of saying that that was equivalent of the Rooney chance. I, I thought Welbeck's was much, much more difficult technically, but oh gosh, if he could just get his finishing together because his all-round game is absolutely magnificent. You know, it, it's just such a shame that his composure's just not quite there and then something about the technique's not quite there. Well, you wonder whether it's going to come or not. Yeah, you he, do, he's, but uh, I... It's not as if he's short of games. I mean, he does play, so... And, uh, and, and that composure hasn't come and he maybe he's just not... A man with that kind of natural composure in the right time the right place you you want him to have the finishing ability of Michael Owen and the rest of the ability of Danny Welbeck don't you (laughs) yes and the personality of Danny Welbeck please if it's all possible so it's also worth giving some credit to Cardiff who were excellent right I mean they 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 have been good on occasion this season and under the circumstances they're doing that under it's really rather impressive ex-red Fraser Campbell scored and give the sort of semi-muted celebration you know not going absolutely ballistic but certainly not apologizing or any Mario Goetze style nonsense yes that was nonsense wasn't it? It was. It really was. But yeah, uh, so, so he, you know, he had a really good game. Gary Neville described uh, Fraser Campbell's chip as Cantona-esque when uh, Campbell chips and hit the bar. He's been a bit modest, old Genev there, because I remember him doing almost exactly that in a game against Juventus. <laughs> yeah, well, n- not known for his finishing ability, old Genev. So yeah, you got to you got to take it where you get it. Uh, a fine effort by Campbell, and I think he's done well for himself. I mean, look, he's had a middling career, hasn't he? After he left United, it didn't really hit the heights. Did he get one or two England caps? Can't remember now, but it wasn't many, was it? Not really taken off and obviously bounced in between the Championship and the, the Premier League. But he had a very good game against United. Very, very good game. Uh, scored the goal, hit the bar. And uh, and I thought generally lively gave Ferdinand and Evans uh, a difficult time. And given that he was playing up front on his own, really, because Odin Wingy played uh, you know, out on the left for the most part, didn't he? And, and they tried to get support from midfield. 
you know, I think Campbell's post-United career has been so defined by injury that actually it's impressive that he's still playing because you know, a year and a half out of the game is no joke for a young player, is it? I think he's he's doing he's doing really well to rebuild himself as a Premiership striker. And, and apart from when he plays against us, I wish him well. You know, yes, or snow joke if you're Jack Wilshere. <laughs> yes, quite. Um, oh, I'm buzzing off that last joke, Ed. Oh, d- t- talking of uh, that kind of thing, everyone's favourite domestic goddess uh, now. We know what the icing sugar was all about. I, I won't have that, Ed. I won't have that. A, a man domestically abused his wife and then he's throwing around allegations about her behaviour to distract from his own terrible conduct. I'm not. I'm not perpetuating this nonsense. No way. Not our Nigella. Oh dear. My, my heroes <laughs> deconstructed right. one at a time. Well, not really my hero, but. Charles Archie, world class terrible bloke. This um, is this sorry. is true. We we somewhat digress there, don't we? <laughs> yeah. So look, that was the Cardiff game and a poor performance and a very poor result for United. And how long can United keep on staying in touch with the leaders and dropping points? Uh, I think it comes to the point where one of Arsenal, Chelsea or Manchester City are going to put a run in and going to win 10 on the trot or something like that. And if United uh, keep up with this up and down form, then the club will find themselves 10 or more points behind uh, come the spring. You know, So that's the scenario we don't want. What we really want is for uh, that run of, of good form. Because, look, United haven't been beaten since September the 7th against West Brom, but too many draws in there in the league. And you want United now to really hit the accelerator and start winning games. Absolutely. And City's form is fascinating. I mean, it's absolutely fascinating if you compare their home form and their away form. I mean, their last two home games, completely and utterly ridiculous. It's all right. Beating Norwich 7-0 is the sort of thing that we might do or certainly might have done in our pomp. But that 7-0 destruction of Spurs, 6-0, sorry, but you'd be terrified, right, if you're the rest of the league at that point. If they can get it together away from home, which... Incidentally, it does not speak well of them at all as a collective that they're not doing that a bit more already. But if they can't, if they start to put that form together into a run, they really are going to be unstoppable, right? Yeah, and they've got the finest squad in the country. It's taking a little bit of time for Pellegrini to knit that squad into the kind of team he wants. And, and there's a complex set of personalities there. I think he'll do it in the end and I think they'll be a very fine side. He is not known for burning his players out either, so I think they'll put in a strong end of the season. It will be interesting to see if United do that, given Moyes' predilection for overtraining, uh, whether United get a bit tired towards the end of the season. Of course, I'm completely speculating there. Uh, that may not happen, but uh, I suspect it will. In any case, so all that means is that it's very important that United now put in the run of results, which... Of course, they did in Germany, which was a surprise. I have to say, I did not see that one coming. Don't know about you. I think I predicted a draw on the show. By the time the Leverkusen game rolled around, I was predicting a 3-1 loss to United. I tweeted about 10 minutes before kickoff. Rarely in my life have I ever felt so pessimistic before a Manchester United fixture. Uh, I thought we had no chance and we won 5-0. Well, I know. I mean, the, the thing is, you look at that team and you think, oh, that could be exciting up front. Rooney and Kigawa, I like the look of that. And Valencia and Nani in there and, and uh, you know, the, the solid back four. And, and then you look at central midfield, Giggs and Jones and you think uh-oh the ability of those two to gift possession to the opposition is worrying isn't it and in the end they were probably United's two best players and they had a lot of very good players I mean Giggs was absolutely magnificent he's he's nearly 40 he's 40 tomorrow or something isn't he <laughs> yeah, I believe by the time you're listening to this Ryan Giggs is 40 it, it, it's and he puts in a performance of that kind of quality against Let's remind ourselves the team that is second in the Bundesliga behind Bayern Munich at the moment and a team that has been increasingly in good form as the season went on and he was awesome in that central midfield berth. He dictated the tempo of United's play. His passing was excellent and penetrative. He was in the right places to allow Rooney and Kigawa to run absolute riot in the final third. Just brilliant from Ry Giggs and just brilliant just in a performance that was nothing about his age. I mean, Moy said afterwards, I understand why people focus on his age, but let's just focus on the player. And too right after that kind of performance. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that is amongst the best games Ryan Giggs has ever had in central midfield for Manchester United, as far as I'm concerned. And he was really good, you know, uh, a few weeks ago as well in, in the Champions League in central midfield. I remember raving about him then, but that was that was next level. That was, you know, it's staggering to think that Ryan Giggs has put in the best central midfield performance for United this season out of everyone by an absolute mile. You know, it was all round brilliant because he was effective defensively. He was tigerish, you know. He said Phil Jones does his running for him but that's actually doing himself a slight disservice I think I think he did a lot of his own running too you know the pass for the last goal it just capped it off didn't it he's always been able to do that when he's been in central midfield the, the penetration with his passing is very very good the fact that he wastes the ball has been the problem but he certainly didn't do that against Leverkusen he was yeah, he was excellent with the ball he got on the ball so much I mean here's a player who's 40 and uh, he had the ball 80 times 80 uh, he was dribbling he was shooting he made tackles he brought other players into play and uh, all round brilliant performance but hey I don't, don't want to talk just about Ryan Giggs because there are other great performances I thought Nani had a very effective game absolutely uh, yeah Kagawa uh, just love watching him in that position it, it's a complete transformation he turns into the butterfly doesn't he the metamorphosis when he uh, gets into that central creative position uh, his ability to affect the play in the transition which he cannot do coming off the left in the same way I mean he can get on the ball from a static position when he plays off the left but it's just not the same he was buzzing around he was brilliant even when he didn't have the ball he pulled players out of position because the central midfield trio of of Leverkusen and Rolfes and Reinhardt and Bender who were all very good players in their own right uh, couldn't cope with that movement and, and Rooney up front extremely effective I mean the fact that he got what four assists but I think he would say that uh, a lot of the fact that he was able to produce those assists uh, were because of the base of gigs in midfield and, and Kagawa's movement and passing range absolutely I mean I agree with every word of that and I could wax lyrical about that Shinji Kagawa performance but it's almost painful to see how good we looked playing that way because it's just this thing that three into two doesn't go you know the worst thing about that performance last night is it's not replicable for United first of all gigs cannot play like that every week of course secondly Moyes is not going to let Shinji Kagawa be United's default number 10 and uh, I was having discussion with someone who was saying you know is he better than Rooney or Van Persie and like maybe he's not better than Rooney or Van Persie but for sure for sure we look more functional as a team with him playing that role well I agree yeah look you can't argue with the numbers for Rooney I I think I saw uh, somewhere that he's got 15 assists all season this season which is magnificent the numbers are fantastic I mean if he ends the season with 25 assists and 20 goals United are going to be challenging for all sorts of trophies and he'll be challenging for player of the season trophy right because that, that is fantastic numbers you can't argue with that but I totally agree with you as, as a side United the function best with Kegara in there much more fluid and much more flexible and, and in fact it was a very flexible performance from United all round I mean think about flexibility of Jones and Giggs in the central midfield area there they gave a lot to United and Valencia and Nani didn't just stick to their wings I mean Nani was roving all over the place Valencia less so and Kagawa he just drifts everywhere and, and it's brilliant because if you don't know exactly where he's going to be the opposition certainly don't either and it makes United much much different Fellaini and cleverly in there United are static through midfield Rooney is not a number 10, you know, he's a striker who likes to drop deep and he plays increasingly like that. And do you remember Rooney's debut for England uh, when he came on against Turkey, I believe, when he was sort of 17 or so? And he immediately dropped into that position about 15 yards behind the striker and he started playing like a traditional number 10. And I don't think he does that in the same way anymore. He doesn't want to, he wants to be, you know, much more up front. So what happens is when Rooney plays behind Van Persie, United look like. A very close to a 4-4-2 uh, when Kagawa plays in there United were a 4-2-3-1 and much much more flexible and dynamic yeah absolutely a, a word for Tony V yeah he was pulled off but that was certainly nothing to do with his performance his best performance in the United shirt since the last time we played Leverkusen fantastic energy and pace and actually you think if Raphael had been behind him we'd have been even more functional uh, as an attacking unit although Smalling had a really good game and lovely to see I think he did score right in the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got prop be properly on the score sheet at the 
The other thing I wanted to say about Kagawa, almost every time he has the ball, he does something with it that I am not expecting. You know, when you you, you see so many counter-attacks and you know how they go, and even if you think about the, those kind of classic counter-attacking Ronaldo, Rooney, Jason Park goals against Arsenal, every ball makes sense. Every ball's the kind of logical ball that you kind of know is coming next, and it's just a question of perfect execution and physicality that makes it work. But Kagawa does things with the ball that... There's just a a slightly different angle than you're expecting. Just something which opens up the defence in a kind of more creative way. He literally made a magical pass within 30 seconds of that game starting. This finally on the the, the flexibility. As you say, Nani, a wonderful game. And he just looked on it from the word go. And it has been such a long time since we've seen that version of Nani. I don't know what it was that made him feel that he had that freedom. Whether it was just the fact that the weight of responsibility is so shared amongst the attacking players in that situation. And, you know, 5-0, very unusual for us to have, you know, four different goal scorers and an OG. It doesn't happen that often, does it? Well, yeah. Uh, and look, it's, uh, I guess it's easy to um, be overwhelmed with the confidence that comes from that kind of, of victory and think, hang on a minute, uh, when you've got Valencia in a penetrative mood, Kagawa pulling the strings, Nani being Nani at his best, Rooney making goals all over the place and, and the central midfield working, you think uh, this is a United side that could challenge for any trophy. Then you realise that that just doesn't happen every week does it this is a one-off and Moy said oh we want to be doing that every week the evidence isn't there to say that United will I mean three days beforehand much much different performance so can Nani produce that kind of performance most weeks until the end of the season history and a long history tells us that he will not do that history tells us also in a shorter history that Kigawa will be shunted to the left again Valencia's confidence doesn't seem to allow him to play that way every week Gig certainly can't play that way every week uh, most of the time he's quite wasteful in central midfield and doesn't put in that kind of performance at all and Phil Jones just gives the ball away because he doesn't know what he's doing in there you know so that's the normal narrative this was very different uh, I hope uh, that a lot of the good stuff that was that came out in the Leverkusen game is now translated into the rest of the games this season yeah and and you wonder I mean I don't think he's going to pick the same lineup against Spurs and we'll get the same sort of performance or anything like that but you wonder when he sees that the static 4-4-2 is not working and he'll think back well what have been the times when I've been really when we've looked really good oh yeah it's been when you know I was playing Shinji at number 10 we were more fluid more flexible that Leverkusen game is going to stick in his mind and this is the slow evolution of David Moyes I hope this is where the Gary Neville thing of the club changing him. How can you not think back on that game and think, right, what did we do in that game that we've not been doing since? How do we bring that about? And I think that, you know, the whole thing about giving Moyes patience is my main thing that I want to see from him now is effective use of United's power in the transfer market, whatever power that is, to build a side that can play like that more often. And it all starts in central midfield. Because a functional central midfield performance out of Giggs and Jones is not going to happen every week, obviously. So how do you build a central midfield using the transfer market that does create that every week? That's the, the huge challenge for Moyes. And, and it will have to be the transfer market because we know that there's a lot of guff in that area. Darren Fletcher, even if he comes back, he's not going to be performing at the very highest level. Just not going to happen. Cleverly, we've talked about his problems. Uh, Fellaini... Still, jury, jury out, jury donning the black cap, I'm afraid, uh, on him. We'll, we'll see whether it ever gets any better. Jones, uh, I don't think that's his final position by any means. Giggs, uh, just about to turn 75. Uh, and, of course, there is Anderson, who did come on for a little spell at the end there. Played in the hole, shunted Kigawa out of that, and uh, drifted through midfield, talking of flexible. Had a great chance and then dragged it about 20 yards wide such a shame because that would have been an absolute worldie it was like such a beautiful build up and then oh Anderson that was just Anderson's United career if he'd fallen over and got injured after missing that chance that would have been the perfect encapsulation of Anderson's career because hope promise excitement oh dashed on the rocks oh now he's injured you know, fallen over and tripped on a Burger King <laughs> but oh it's McDonald's he likes isn't it, it? Is, yeah. but you know not a sour note to end that game on because it was funny because like he literally Moyes <laughs> Five nil up brings on Bootner, Anderson, and Young. T- absolutely taking the Mickey at that point. It's like, look what I can do. Yes, and uh, you know that, that kind of gives you an idea about how bad Leverkusen were. So, in in all the praise for United, we also have to 
admit that Leif Kusin were completely overawed, weren't they? And Sammy Hopier, boo! <laughs> shall, we, shall we mention that he's a former Liverpool defender, Sammy Hopier, uh, whose team was absolutely battered by United twice, I might add, this season, because United were very good in the home side. But uh, they froze in the headlights. Uh, and Rudy Voller, who's a sporting director there, uh, said that they'd done that at Old Trafford. They did it at the Bay Arena too. Uh, he won't be very happy with that. Sammy Hopier, the former Liverpool defender. Former Liverpool captain, right? Big Liverpool hero, Sammy Hopier. He is. Absolutely battered. I, I saw some uh, cruel people on, on Twitter saying uh, that uh, there was no action at Anfield on uh, Champions League night, which is very true because, of course, they didn't qualify for the Champions League. But there was action uh, from a Liverpool side. They're under 21s as playing a reserve game. There you go. There uh, you go. And there their ex- ex-captain was getting beat 5-0 by us. Yes. Very very, very pleasing. All round, um, if they finish above us in the league, this is not going to be funny anymore. But It certainly is not. It's a Bayer Leverkusen game, and that was fantastic all round. Let's hope that United are able to translate that into, uh, into success in Europe this season. Talking of success in Europe, uh, you interviewed Ben Turner, who is the director of the absolutely fabulous... The class for ninety two documentary. So go on, give, give us your give us your verdict before we hear from Ben on what you thought of the film. I mean, absolutely fabulous is the word. I, I wrote a review on uh, United rant of the of the film. I'm going to just very quickly start with the one thing about the film that I don't like, and that's the inclusion of Tony Blair. You know what it is? It's um, whichever revels you personally don't like. For me, it's kind of the raisin ones, probably, or maybe the if you have too many toffee ones in a pack. Whichever revels you don't like, that's the Tony Blair bit. Assuming that all the rest of the revels are like the most amazing, perfect beautiful orange revels you've ever had in your life because my goodness this film is just pure wish fulfillment for reds everywhere the story is obviously the story we all know of the class of 92 and their rise and it basically charts their career up to 99 and doesn't really do much beyond that dips into it occasionally I'm not going to talk in any detail about any of the specific jokes, anecdotes, little moments in the film, because when you know the story, it's the little moments that make it. But I just will say that you have never heard Ryan Giggs, Paul Scholes that relaxed. Um, the Phil Neville stuff is wonderful. The Nicky Butt stuff surprised me in how just how engaging his story is. Beckham is probably the most guarded of all of them, because obviously he has brand beckham at stake in a way that the rest of them doesn't but he's still pretty open you know and and relaxed with everyone and it's a beautifully put together film it looks beautiful the tony blair stuff's really unfortunate because he's kind of put in the film as a signifier of the kind of broader cultural context in britain in the 90s where this idea that youth could triumph you know and it's the offset of you'll never win anything with kids like the labor party won the election with the youngest prime minister for hundreds of years or whatever but when you're making a film about 90s optimism to essentially put the man that killed it stone dead in Britain in your film and not even mention the fact that he's the one that killed it stone dead is slightly problematic you know well yes of course but there there is no narrator there and which was I thought was a very brave decision by the filmmakers because it would have been easier to pander to the lowest common denominator and use a narrator to try and tell the story but there isn't one it's told through the words of the protagonists and, and a few others few other talking heads of course Tony Blair who pretty much only says use wins out and it's uh, better doing it as a team they're not but uh, in a particularly Tony Blair way uh, unnecessary Danny Boyle uh, he said what he said about uh, the culture of Britain at that time many many times so it does feel very familiar Manny was fantastic I think he really gives the fans voice in this story and of course the stars are are the guys and there's a talking headpiece with each of them uh, which is lovely and interspersed through the film uh, in the focus on each of the players. But the real star of the show, of course, is the dinner they have. There's two things about this film that really brings out strongly the dinner. One, that this is is a buddy movie, right? This is about friends, and it's not really about footballers. They, they could have been doing it. They could have been artists or bin men or you know, doing a newspaper somewhere or whatever. They're friends, and they had success together, had failures together, uh, they grew up together, and they had this amazing triumph, the, the peak of their profession. And the other is, it's, um, 
it's a it's a it's a Hollywood script, isn't it? This is a sporting movie, you know. Of course, we all know that the Titanic sinks, and and we all know that the class of '92 win the treble. But it still feels fresh when it, it comes through in their own words. And through that uh, stories, um, the little personal stories about them growing up, and and you find out quite how dry Paul Scholes' humour is. That Nicky Butt is really very sharp. Indeed, that Ryan Giggs is a fantastic storyteller. Really knows how to bring out an anecdote, doesn't he? He does. Um, I'm just it, chuckling it, thinking about it. Some yeah. very good ones. Yeah, some very good ones, which uh, we won't spoil for you. But look, we're Reds. Even if you aren't a Red, I think you can enjoy this film. Uh, maybe not if you're a Liverpool fan. It might be a little difficult uh, or or a City fan too. But the story is just a story of these guys who uh, had this fantastic success and how it came about together. And it's lovely for it. And and, and as you say, looks beautiful, really well put together and, and, and a very brave piece as well. And, and I guess, you know, the real secret to documentary telling when you're using talking heads predominantly is to make the subjects feel comfortable. And I don't think I've ever seen each of them that comfortable. No, I mean, you'll hear me talk to Ben Turner about talking to Skulls. If I was directing this film, I'd be really nervous going into the conversation with Paul Skulls because is he going to be able to, is he going to want to participate? But I think because they're all in it together, they've clearly all signed up for this, you know. Um, whoever was behind it and i reckon we could probably take a guess that it was maybe gary neville that was the impetus for this one i think if you think about all of their personalities that's maybe the most likely impetus for the film but the fact that they're all in it together they all really have clearly signed up and are on board with this process and it's hilarious and really heartwarming if you've listened to this on friday um or saturday have a look in your local cinema listings or on the class of 92 film twitter feed and have a look for places where they're showing it because on the the cinematic release they're also doing a live link up to a Q&A at the premiere in London and we've given away a, a few pairs of tickets to the the Manchester screening of that so congratulations to the folks that won that but yeah if you're if you're not able to get to it, it's coming out on DVD the day after and it's just absolutely worth your time and money as a story you know it's a fantastic story and we've had early copies of it to review and we've given away tickets so you know just want to say that to be clear but nobody's bought us off to say this and you'll uh, you'll see that for yourselves when you watch it. It's just a joy. It's just an absolute joy. Someone made a film for us, you know. They certainly did. I guess without giving away too much, there's a absolutely fantastic story about Phil Neville's step over. Uh, <laughs> pr- probably the funniest moment in the film for me. But uh, Mark Commode said in his uh, review on The Guardian that uh, it passes his five guffaw test of of a comedy. And, and there's certainly a lot of laughs in it. It's not meant to be a comedy, but it is very, very funny. Yeah. It's touching. It's beautifully done. Eric Cantona's in it. You can forget Tony Blair. Look, you know... He's he's forgotten. Uh, this is a this is a great film. Uh, it's a film that needed to be made, didn't it? And uh, it's it's been done absolutely brilliantly. I'm sure you'll enjoy it when you go and see it. Absolutely. And with apologies for the slightly bad sound quality caused by the technical limitations available to us to record this. Here's uh, an interview I did with the director Ben Turner. Hi there. Hello. Hello, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Very good, thanks. Very good. Thank you for doing this. It's much appreciated. No worries. No worries. Uh, so I'm going to get the uh, blatant fawning out of the way straight away. I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I really, really dug the film. I'm probably pretty smack bang in the target audience. It's fantastic. So uh, I guess this question you've been asked a million times, but I've got to start with this. What's the origin of the project? How did it come together? Um, well, I think the players, now that they were, well, apart from Geeksy retiring... Uh, or at least coming to the end of their careers, uh, I think they were keen to tell their story. Um, and they approached us to uh, to get involved with uh, with doing that. Um, our producer, Leo, who's uh, also my cousin, um, was the one who was really like, this is this is cinematic, let's, let's, not, uh, let's not just make a normal TV doc, this, this is a massive story. So... Uh, it was sort of with his kind of vision that we went to uh, turn it into a film. If it was a movie, it would be a ridiculously overblown Hollywood fantasy, right? It, the... Yeah, 100%. That's the beauty of documentaries. You can get away with a bit more because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I think a lot of the commentary around the film has been on uh, the performance of Paul Scholes, who, much like it could be argued, is the standout player of, of the lot of them. He's also the sort of secret standout star of this. Were you expecting that? Uh we were a little bit 
we didn't know what to expect when we got to interview him, obviously because of his persona. He's not uh, known as Mr. Media, but he, I think that uh, we were very, very happily surprised to find out that he's the real deal. He just genuinely is a lovely, sort of thoughtful, quiet bloke who loves to do his talking on the pitch, but it's not that he doesn't have anything to say. He just... Uh, chooses what he says quite carefully so you know that was that was an amazing surprise we were quite nervous going into that but it was uh it was possibly the, well among the greatest days of work i've ever done because uh, we also got to go to the park with him and film some of those lovely shots of him kicking the ball at, well at us and uh and have a little kick around in the park with him which was just unbelievable yeah i've, I've come over all missy eyed at the idea of going to the park with paul skulls so, yeah. And not to explain how cool it was just sitting there, like, chatting. And to have all that time just to chat with him, you know, it was, just, it was very, very special. So are you guys United fans, or do you come from a, a, some sort of other background? No, we're, we're from a long line of Sunderland fans, which, uh, which makes us relatively well disposed to United, because uh, we certainly, uh, United certainly bailed us out when it looked like Newcastle were going to win the league. And uh, at, that, <laughs> at that point, we, uh, we supported United for the run-in then. And obviously, there's been quite a lot of uh, there's been quite a lot of sort of uh, players and managers, obviously, uh, that have come back and forward between the clubs. But uh, but I think it's also, I mean, the, the difficulty is you've got to try and hit both audiences. You've got to make a film that for the the honours the kind of diehard Reds uh, and doesn't take them for granted because I think it'd be quite easy not to tell the story well enough for people who've lived through it and supported the club. And equally, you've got to try and find a way of telling that story so it transcends. Uh, you know, so it's not just a United Club Shop DVD, but it's a genuine kind of movie. So that was that was a challenge, but what a great one to have to, uh, to, to have to try and meet. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you uh, approach that challenge? What was your thinking in terms of like making it into a cinematic thing as opposed to MUTV production sort of thing? Our feeling was that that was what we needed to get to the kind of buddy movie side of it. They've all written autobiographies. Their their stories is very well documented. The aim wasn't to, although there are things in the film that I think people won't have heard before, it was less about the kind of journalistic sort of big exclusives and more about telling the story from their perspective. Because we all watched the Champions League final, but none of us played in the Champions League final. And to try and, you know, and to try and get a sense of what that's like uh, and, and what it's like, you know, so uniquely to do it with your close childhood friends, we felt was the key to uh, to making it work. And also to to explore the way in which their story reflects what went on uh, in Britain at the time. That, you know, they were, obviously, as the Alan Hansen, you can't win anything with kids. But I think that there was a sense before they came along of that around the country, you know, that it's very, you know, Britain's quite conservative and it's quite establishment and we just come out of a long period of Tory rule. And there was that moment in the 90s where it felt, as Tony Blair says, that anything was possible and that, you know, you could make these huge breakthroughs. So to find a way of people who lived through that period understanding their story through that lens was the other big way, I think, of making it transcend the uh, United Club Shop DVD thing. Yeah, absolutely, because they probably couldn't get Tony Blair. I have to say, from being a Red in more ways than one, the inclusion of Tony Blair was a bit of a surprise. So to start on a positive note, like, how did you get him involved? Who, who reaches out to Tony Blair if you want to get him to talk about football? Well, we've we, we've done quite a lot of work in the past uh, for Comic Relief and and uh, quite sort of big institutional uh, shows like that. So we've, we've got decent sort of connections to try and get the message through to him. But he was really, you know, he was really up for it. I think his legacy is dominated by um, by the war in Iraq and what happened after that. But I think there's before you know whatever anyone thinks of that before that there's the, you know he was central to an amazing time in uh, in in Britain and I think he was quite up for uh, being able to talk about that a little bit rather than you know than, than, than the war. And we thought that if we're telling a story about the stories that that's part of transcending the uh, the club shop thing. It's like if we can if we're going to try and tell the story of 90s Britain. Then I mean, you know, who better to talk to than Tony Blair? So absolutely, he also represents something interesting in terms of the way politics and football um, sort of met, and football's real sort of move into the mainstream. Again, if you look at what, what was going on in the 80s when under Thatcher, football was very much the kind of enemy, I would say, of the mainstream. When he was prime minister, he was quite, you know, obviously quite keen to be associated with football. Uh, I used to hate him because I was a Newcastle fan at that point. <laughs> but, um, but once again, obviously United managed to put them in their place. Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of interesting because I think there's a 
painful irony in Tony Blair talking about the kind of optimism in Britain in the 90s because I think if, if people in 100 years are making a documentary about time it will be the Iraq war that kind of brings that period to an end either that or when David Beckham left United and went to Real Madrid one or the other I've reached out to uh, people on Twitter listeners to the podcast to just get a couple of extra questions and one from at Craig English 92 who says why now uh, was the idea put forward before and perhaps not backed by Sir Alex or did they just get tired of waiting for Giggsy to retire <laughs> I think that they are uh, probably tired of waiting for Giggsy to retire I mean it's it's really we had a great chat it's not in, in the film so much. we had a lovely conversation with Phil about the fact that he's now he's essentially Giggsy's coach now you know, and, and Giggsy was so much more senior than him for all their playing career. We were till we were laughing about the, the if, if there comes a time when Phil Neville has to uh, drop Giggsy from the team and what that would be like. He just looked very embarrassed at the prospect. <laughs> um, so if in 10 years' time someone interviews you about the making of this film, what do you think is the one first story you would want to tell them about what it was like to be involved in this project? Oh, that's a great question. I need a moment to think about that. <laughs> you um, got a moment, no problem. Yeah, because it's more, I mean, the to, to, to whittle that down to one would be... Uh, would be amazing. I think if they, I mean, I think in a way the top moment, the most touching moment for me, and the thing that lives with me the most, was the uh, the game that they had at the cliff with the other guys who who played with them in the class of '92. Uh, back then, it was uh, when you're making a film like that, you think about all the great things you can do, and you try and set them up, and it's all quite practical in that moment, um, trying to get everything organised, and obviously like bringing everyone together was quite a difficult practical thing, and I hadn't really thought about what it would mean to the other players to have that game and what it would mean also to our you know to, to the, our, our sort of six to have that reunion and go back to the cliff and you know play a game there and that was just an amazing thing to be a part of um that whole day was just was was just astonishing and because it, it, it was a genuine sort of reunion and they, they're very down to earth the boys and so to see them just it was like they were trainees again, you know, and they were sort of mucking around and kicking balls around each other and just having a great time. And, and I think and everyone was quite sort of touched by the whole experience. And to be a part of that was just you know, bonkers. Absolutely. I mean, you do strike the balance because I, I really imagine, you know, anyone with a passing interest in football or football's role in the culture will f- find it to be a fantastic watch. But for us, it, this is the dream come true that somebody would dedicate that kind of love and attention to this story and make it into such a cinematic project and you know I've I've spoken to a couple of people that have seen the film and the experience is pretty universal really and I, I kind of wanted to just feed this back and to just really say thank you for giving it the treatment it sort of so richly deserves I wonder if you felt that sense of wanting to honor that story oh yeah definitely I mean Whilst we're not United fans, we're massive football fans, and uh, well, I mean, if we were Liverpool fans or City fans, it would be difficult. But I never really bought into the anyone but United stuff, especially because anyone but United might have been Newcastle. So I've always had a bit of an affection for it. But I think that their story really is, you know, emblematic of of what happened to English football in that time. And uh, it was just, you know, amazing to be a part of it. And that's the love that we have for them and their story and football in general. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it was just a great thing to be able to do. It felt very natural. Our editor's a Chelsea fan, so he uh, there were a couple of moments when he was like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, you know, he couldn't, no one could help themselves once you start to it's such a great story and such a great project. Noticed you had a United fan, though, as a football consultant on the project, which we're all yeah. pleased about. Uh, how, did you, how did you go about choosing which bits of fo- football to focus on? Um, well, I mean, Daniel has been was writing a book simultaneously about that season, uh, and we've known him for a long time as well, so he is uh, he was a natural choice for it. Um, we want we the, the, the kind of key structural thing in how we wanted to tell the story is we thought that because it's about them and, and about their friendship and their kind of journey in film speak, we wanted to tell the story around their personalities again it's not you can't get you certainly can't get all of the stuff from all of their careers in and all of the details and all the all of the statistics so we really tried to think of it in terms of a a moment a key moment for each of those players um across that time period and and across that season and that was really our starting point so from there it was it was easier to to pick the moments for instance I mean, I don't. You couldn't. If you think about the '99 season, the game against Juventus is is obviously incredibly key. But I think if you speak to any United fan or any football fan or anyone who watched it, that was Kino's moment. 
and so to dwell on that too much in the film wouldn't wasn't quite right it was it was a big moment for them in terms of Paul Scholes and that's how we worked it into the film but you know there there are there are plenty of moments from that season that that we could have focused on but as I say something like that was Kino's moment so it felt a little, and this is their story so it was a, that, that understanding that made those kind of decisions easier yeah absolutely so it's all about structuring a narrative right at that point and yeah. using the kind of iconography around those players so um who who was your favourite interview out of them? Oh wow, that's not that's a very tough question. It, it, it's almost impossible to say really. I mean, Scalzi was was amazing and surprising. Giggs was way funnier than I thought he was going to be. I mean, we giggled our whole way through that. It was brilliant. Um, the mo- I mean, Bex is is amazing. I think I think probably the most surprising was Phil Neville in a way because. I didn't know what. Actually, his reputation is that is that yes no game, isn't it, on MUTV where he where he looked like a where he looked like a bit of an idiot, and I didn't realise he was going to be so articulate and engaging and open with us. You know, he he was amazing. So that was definitely the most surprising one, um, and having him like open up and talk to us about sort of praying before games and stuff like that was just you know it's, it's amazing. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for your time today, and uh, yeah, thank you very much for the film because it's uh, it's fantastic and it comes out December the first in selected cinemas, and then the second on DVD. Is that That's right? right? Yeah. Fantastic. All right. Thank you very much indeed. Um, we'll be putting this on the podcast uh, that comes out on Friday the 29th So that's pretty good timing. That's great. That's great. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm really, really glad you enjoyed it. It means a lot to, to know that we did that we did uh, make the Reds who were going to watch it happy too. Wicked. Wicked. That's great. Thank you very much. Excellent stuff. Yeah, of course, co-director with his brother. Yes. And uh, there have been some very good co-directing brothers over the years, yeah, haven't absolutely. they? Yeah, uh, in, in some very good ones. And, and uh, fitting there's a brother pair in their uh, subject matter as well. Anyway, so that was the Class 92. I hope you all go and see it. Let us know what you think on Twitter. Uh, and talking of Twitter, do we have any Twitter questions this week, Paul? Uh, yes, we do. Um, on the theme, at Jack K. Holt asks, which footballer would you get to play you in the story of your life? I'm going to pick for you, Ed, if I may. Go on. Robin Van Persie looks a lot like you. Ah, uh, yeah, but I think my, my talent and my personality is much more like Eric. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And if he's not going to play me in film, I'm going to fly kick someone. <laughs> there you go. So many questions about Shinji at number 10. Yes, make it happen somehow. It's just not going to happen on a regular basis. That's the thing. Because he's not going to drop or move Rooney and Robin Van Persie Do you yet. know what? Remember what happened in the 2008 season? Tevez, Ronaldo, Rooney up front. Could you tell which one of them was the striker? Uh, no. And there you go. I think there's an opportunity for United to, given the personalities and profile and types of players we have at the moment, I, I wouldn't always advocate this, but I think an extremely flexible 4-3-3 of some kind would fit United's players right now. We need to protect central midfield, so playing three in there is a very good idea. And somehow you've got to get Kagawa into that team. He was fantastic. He's got a massive talent. We're going to lose him if we don't use it properly. And it's a waste of time having him on the left-hand side. Frankly, if Nani's going to play the way he plays, I'd rather have Nani on the left-hand side than Kagawa on the left-hand side because he's going to be more effective. At Pete of All Trades says, Why didn't Rooney shoot? Hashtag Rankcast. Can't help you there, Pete. No idea. What other Theos is Theophile a big fan of? Asks at HLDSTDY. Yeah, possibly the best surname in football. Yeah, absolutely. Theophile Catherine. Surely it's got to be Theo from The Cosby Show, the, the world's greatest ever Theo. Theo! No, terrible, terrible impression. Um, Oh yeah, this is an interesting one from at Hez123. He says, this ain't Everton, Moisey, but a draw against bottom half opposition is not an acceptable result. Yeah. Very good point because... I did not see this particularly widely reported. I saw it in Andy Mitten's piece uh, on The National, and it was mentioned in the Guardian Football podcast. But Moyes apparently seemed to say, I mean, Andy Mitten just quotes him saying, that he would have taken that result before the game. He did say that. Isn't that completely insane? Yes, it is. And I'm afraid David Moyes has not been indoctrinated by the club yet. That's not acceptable. But what I did like, so a counterbalance to that, 
that that's Moyes all over, isn't it? A counterbalance to that is a United at four nil up, still attacking. Yeah, that's United. Attack, 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 attack. Yeah, and it wouldn't be a rank cast without a question from our typical city, uh, who said something very nice about our podcast this week. So thank you, sir. Uh, he says, "Feeling or Ancelotti?" A uh, very tough shout. <laughs> we haven't mentioned this yet in the show, but um, Mike Feeling. <laughs> sorry, never going to keep a straight face getting through this. Mike Feeling said to the Daily Mail that he was essentially Man United manager in all but name. Yes, he did, didn't he? He's become quite a mouthpiece uh, since he lost his job. I suppose he hasn't got much to do at the moment. I'm surprised he hasn't got a coaching job, though, because Ferguson certainly rated him. Despite his his kind of nodding dog uh, reputation, uh, he is sort of highly in football circles. I, I guess he's looking for the right position. He's not just taking a job anywhere. But he's not doing his cause very much good, is he, uh, by speaking to the papers every week? No, I mean, that was definitely an occasion where the headline reads worse than the actual quote, which is just basically saying he has had a lot of responsibility at United and that's fair enough he did well, and of course yeah. we, we know that was true uh, and talking to typical City mate if you want to go and see the class of 92 I'll, I'll buy your ticket for you <laughs> yeah i think he'd like it typical city's pretty he's a reasonable young man i wanted to mention on the subject of Phelan and ferguson they've had to offer refunds to people because there are so many factual inaccuracies in uh fergie's book not least of which he says the glazers are perfectly good owners yes which wasn't counted in the 45 inaccuracies that appeared in his book that's because they rushed the book out uh, and uh, I, uh, I do kind of know how these things are done. Um, having worked in the media, and um, and I know a few people who've worked on these kind of things as well. So yeah, they did that in a very, very, very tight timeline. They'll have been editing right up to the day they hit print, and this is why uh, there were so many errors in it. Uh, they didn't go through the due diligence process of fact checking that they might normally have done despite the reputation that particular publishing firm has uh, of being extremely careful here. And not to mention the reputation that Fergie has of having an excellent memory, Mm. because there's Um, some of them which are, hmm. you know, little niggly factual errors, but, you know, there's some pretty spectacular stuff, like saying that Varane and Forlan, I think it was, had a fight when they were never at the club at the same time. Getting the club they sold Yapstam to wrong, that's pretty pretty full-on mistakes, isn't it? Yeah, and, and saying the Glazers are great owners. And uh, forgetting, and giving Carlos Queiroz a load of uh, credit for Cristiano Ronaldo's development and forgetting to tell everyone that Rene Mullenstein made him into the best player in the world. It's weird they would leave that one out, isn't it? Yeah, and he also said that the Glazers were great owners. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fergie, what are you doing, mate? Getting drunk with Vincent Tan by the looks of it, by the slightly unfortunate looks of it. Mm, yes, <laughs> <laughs> rather disturbing that picture, wasn't it? It really was. Um, all right, so talking of rather disturbing, the prospect of a trip to White Hart Lane beckons. Indeed. Disturbing for them, you mean, because well, they've just shipped six. <laughs> they have just shipped six and we've just scored five. And yet I remain not particularly optimistic about either their ability to recreate quite such a disastrous performance or our ability to recreate such a good one. What are your thoughts going into this one? Yes. Yes. Look, it's a White Hart Lane. It's super, super tough. Uh, let's not any bones about that. Uh, this is a difficult game. This is a Spurs side bedding in. They had a lot of new players in the summer. Uh, I think the thing that would have worried Andreas Villas-Boas the most about the City game is how uh, they gave up um Although, you know, the details did go against them. City were absolutely fantastic in an attacking sense against Spurs. Spurs abysmal defensively. Uh, They still had plenty of the ball. They passed the ball actually surprisingly well, Spurs. And they actually created a few chances as well. At home, they won a response, of course. Andreas Villas-Boas is under real pressure. So are the players... They've now got to perform. Uh, I'm sure they'll put in a much, much better performance against United. And United on the road in the Premier League, not always been good. And uh, I don't honestly know which side will turn out. I don't think it will be the same as the one against Leverkusen. And of course, if Van Persie is back, which is a, you know an if at the moment, I believe, then I guess Kigawa will get another run in that role behind Rooney, which will be good if Van Persie isn't back I'm sorry uh, if Van Persie is back Rooney will play with Van Persie and it'll be a very different side and I guess Giggs can't play there again so Fellaini's coming back into the side yeah absolutely um, Spurs is really interesting isn't it because they sold Gareth Bale and then they bought a bunch of really really talented players and they're having trouble making a coherent unit out of them and you sort of think that's inevitable I mean they showed a lot of really early promise Christian Eriksen looked like he was going to be transformative but you've always said 
said over the years that you feel that he's just shy of that very top level of quality and you do wonder why none of the really really giant teams have gone for him while he's been so highly rated you know so perhaps the fact that he's not been able to do that totally consistently is not such a huge shock so look I, I think Ericsson's got some talent on the ball I think the rest of his game is is a bit of a problem but they've, they've got problems all over the place but Soldado has not been scoring Holtby I think is again a shy of the top quality level and he's been playing in this kind of role in the hole which I just don't think suits him as well Sandro and Polino two very very good players who had terrible games against City you know they were abysmal in there and I think at the back they could really do an upgrade on Dawson who's getting slower by the week he said this week he was looking forward to going to the World Cup or something along those lines he thought he could get himself into the World Cup squad no chance none at all he's not going and uh, Vertonghen's been playing a left back as a result because they had Kabul and Dawson in there it's not the right mix so they've got some problems to sort out you know definitely you can see what Villas-Boas is trying to do though you know this is not a team without a plan or a manager who hasn't got a plan will he get the time and that's a big question because Spurs have been quick on the trigger over the years haven't they and you wonder he's definitely definitely under pressure but why spend a huge amount of money and then fire the coach in a, a few months later I think he's got to be given to the end of the season I think by the end of the season all those new players will gel into something better and I bet at some point Lamella comes really good because this is a, a, a lad with just huge amounts of talent he could be he could have gone to many many top teams uh, Spurs picked him up for a, a fantastic amount of money uh, Ericsson we'll see uh, my jury is out on that one but I think there's more to come from them and it could come on uh, at the weekend yeah absolutely and United are going to have to be mindful because another tough game midweek talk of a manager who has a plan and knows what he's doing a manager that's managed to bed his new-ish team together much more quickly and much more effectively than Andre Villas-Boas. Roberto Martinez, the, uh, some would suggest, upgrade on David Moyes. No, I don't believe that to be the case, but there are those who have suggested it. And certainly Everton are playing a very different style of football under Martinez. They really are, yeah. They're playing some good stuff and uh, they, were, they were very good against Liverpool, weren't they? What, what a good game that was. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, unfortunately, the Dipper scored right at the death to to. I'm not sure it was a deserved equaliser, but, you know, I suppose in the spirit of that game, that draw was just about right. But they're playing some really good football, Everton. It's They've had some mixed results, sure, but they're just above United in the table on goal difference, I think. And and they're doing well. They're playing nice football. I think Martinez is extracting about as much as he could do out of them. I think they'll finish in a similar position to, to where Moyes traditionally got them to, you know, probably just outside the European places, and they'll do it playing a very different type of football yeah absolutely they're certainly having more fun at the moment than they were under David Moyes aren't they and the, the one thing that they've got going for them which uh, Moyes didn't have uh, for much of his time in charge at Everton is an incredibly effective number nine easily up there with the worst managerial decisions of all time sending Lukaku out on loan to Everton how much would Chelsea love to have Lukaku in that side oh, an awful lot not quite as bad as paying 8.4 million pounds for Bebe in- including uh, all those add-on transfer fees which uh, and signing bonuses and, and uh, agents fees and stuff like that not quite as bad as that or, or perhaps saying that Liam Miller was the new Roy Keane not as bad as that either and, and definitely not as bad as signing Eric Jemba Jemba no but but yes loaning Lukaku nuts utter nuts given uh, Chelsea's problems with forwards I mean that he's had uh, Mourinho that he's had to play uh, Schürrle up front a midfielder for some games because he has no faith in his forwards there yeah, bonkers but uh, Lukaku is going to be a real danger for United at Old Trafford on Wednesday night for sure I mean he's a player I really enjoy watching I, I think he's an excellent player and it's a real shame he's on loan from Chelsea because I'd be kind of, you know, itching to like, God, is there a way we can make it work with Lukaku in the side? Obviously, we're a little well stocked in that particular area, but he's just fantastic. And, you know, I haven't seen a player play more like Drogba since Drogba, right? He's just so powerful and all action and great in the air, but great with his feet as well. He had a little dry spell for a few weeks uh, in the past few weeks, but back with a bang against Liverpool. And, and yeah, I'm sure he'll cause United problems. And it, two hugely challenging fixtures, two fixtures he's got to take very seriously in terms of squad rotation and the teams he picks and we are a bit thin with a few 
few really key injuries at the moment. Could be a very tough week ahead for the Reds. What, what are your sort of scoreline predictions, team predictions, that sort of thing? Yeah, so it's some difficult choices here because uh, Vidic is uh, out, isn't he, and Carrick out as well for both of those games. Uh, Van Persie, I think it's touch and go on those. So Giggs can't play really in either. I don't think he's going to need a rest. He played the full 90 plus minutes in Leverkusen Ferdinand's going to need a rest at some point so I guess Jones is going to have to go back into central defence unless Raphael is fit is Raphael going to be fit or not and Smalling could so there's some rotation having to happen in central midfield and central defence there that tends to disrupt things doesn't it if you have too many players around all at the same time but it's going to have to happen and then he's got a few difficult decisions to make up front and in wide areas about who gets the role I mean just one 5-0 on the road you'd like to keep as much of that team together as possible but it seems like that's a very difficult job to do given all of those injuries and the requirement to rest some of the older players predictions Let, let's just say that United will get a real boost from Leverkusen so um, predictions or uh, prediction from the heart I'm not sure I think United will go to Tottenham and win 3-2 and beat Everton 1-0 because that's not going to be a pretty game. At least from United. Maybe Everton will outpass us. Um, yeah, uh, Everton against Everton B. I'll let you decide which one's which. I, I think the Tottenham game... Uh, She's got the bad feelings, uh, but then, you know, we, we won 5-0. We won 5-0 last time I have the bad feelings, but I want to be very clear. I'm not engineering the bad feelings for reasons of superstitions. I genuinely think the difficulty with us getting a boost from that Leverkusen game is that both the personnel and the system are going to be different, and Tottenham are going to be absolutely desperate to prove a point after that 6-0 hammering. I think I'm going to predict a 2-1 win to them, and then we'll beat Everton 2-0. No, 2-1 again, yeah. So lose 2-1 and win 2-1 there's my predictions all right very good well it's been a long show this week hasn't it uh what with that extra interview do go and see class 92 great stuff you'll enjoy it and and let's hope you enjoy it alongside a couple of united wins uh, certainly a couple of tough games for united very pivotal week don't you think and if it all goes wrong at white hart lane and everton snatch something at old trafford which has happened before uh, united could find themselves somewhat distant in the Premier League. A couple of great wins and, and we'll all be singing Moyes' name and saying that he's finally stamped his mark on United. After all, United haven't been beaten for two months now. Could be a very good week too. Yeah, absolutely. I think it might be two months today. Yeah, it's the 28th of November as we record this. Last loss on the 28th of September. Having just predicted a loss, let's keep that unbeaten record going. Let's keep the spirit of the class of 92 alive. Come on, United!